Hi, my name is Stephen Bryant, and I want to welcome you to episode 20 of the RelativityChallenge.com podcast. In today's podcast, we're going to take a look at a presentation that I delivered a few weeks ago at the AAAS Pacific Division Conference, uh, which was held this year at San Francisco State University. So what we're going to do today is look at three things. We're going to take a very quick look at the history of moving systems. We're going to revisit the mistake and explain why it hasn't been caught before. And we're going to talk about why correcting the mistakes that we're going to talk about leads to an easier theory with better math results. So first, we need to look at the history of moving systems. It begins with Newton, and Newton has a, a model uh, that explains moving systems. And Michelson and Morley decided to put that model to the test, or a similar model to the test. And they created a device called an interferometer, and they expected to use this device to determine the Earth orbital velocity around the sun, which they knew was 30 kilometers per second. They were only able to detect five to eight kilometers per second. So a lot of people looked at their experiment, both their device and their algorithm, to see if there was anything wrong, and no one could find anything wrong with it. So Lorenz decided to come along and say, well, if we believe the result, we believe the experiment, we believe the algorithm, we need to be able to explain that five to eight kilometers per second. So he came up with a mathematical adjustment, something that I call normalization, and he also introduced the concept of length contraction. And that was his attempt to explain the Michelson-Morley experiment. Around the same time, Einstein came up with a model that's very similar in terms of the math to what Lorenz had did. However, he does two things that are different from Lorenz. First, he explains a concept that he calls time dilation, and there is a relationship between time dilation and length contraction. But more importantly, Einstein came up with a theory, a theory that has served as a replacement for Newton's equations. So we fast forward to where we are today, and we can say that there's been a lot of experiments that have been performed against special relativity, and we can also say that it's very useful. In fact, many of us have GPSs in our cars or on our phones, or, or you can use software on the internet to see where things are located, and all of this works because of research that's been done in moving systems. So what can we say? We can say that the existing models today are very well tested, and they produce really good results. This is a very important point because anyone who is challenging any of these models, not only do they have to explain what specifically it is that they're challenging, they also have to explain two things. One, if there is a mistake, how could that mistake go for nearly a century without getting detected? And second, what difference does it make? We already have something that gives us really good results. These are two things that we're gonna talk about today. So the first thing I'd like to talk about is what's the problem? And there is a mistake that has existed for 100 years. And part of the problem with this particular mistake, the reason that we haven't found it is because we're still making it today. And for the most part, when we make this mistake, it doesn't harm us, but it can. And that's where it, things get very interesting. So let's take a look at a couple of, of sources of information. Um, here I'm showing you three different sources. One is Wikipedia uh, from this current month. Another is from the NASA.gov website, also from this month. And, and a third source is from the upcoming issue of QST Magazine, which is an, a magazine devoted to amateur radio. Now, all three of these sources should have a good understanding of wavelength. 
And when we look at this, we see all three of them defining wavelength as meters. And for the most part, that's not a problem. Unfortunately, the answer is not meters. Let's explore that. So first, I'd like to give you a pop quiz. Let's say I live in Oakland, which we can see is 60 miles per hour from San Francisco State University. Does that statement make sense to you? For the most part, it probably should not because I've given you a rate instead of a distance. So it's very hard for me to say I live 60 miles per hour because I could have in the same sentence said, I live in Oakland, which we can see is 45 miles per hour from San Francisco State University. So what this does is it tells us something right off the bat if we look at this pop quiz, and that is we can't compare a rate to a measure. So when we say something that is expressed in miles per hour, it's hard to compare that against miles. So we have to be careful in these two types because they are different. Sure, both units start with miles, so miles as a measure of distance, but when you say miles per hour, it is now a measure of rate, and we have to be careful to not confuse the two. So conceptually, we know that, there, that it just doesn't make sense if we were to say something in miles per hour that should have been expressed in miles or vice versa. But does this make any difference mathematically? Well, let's take a look. Let's say I want to drive from San Francisco to San Jose. And I'm going to do this in, with two examples. The first way, we're going to say we're going to use miles as our units. We'll say it's 60 miles to get to San Jose, and then we're going to turn around and come back and go for another 60 miles so we can do our math operation on it and conclude that this is 120 miles round trip. Now what happens if I'm using rates, miles per hour, instead of miles? We will see that I can say I'm driving 60 miles per hour to San Jose and I'm driving 60 miles per hour to San Francisco from San Jose. Is that 120 miles per hour? Of course not. We know that what we have to do in this case is take the average, and we can conclude that, we, that our total trip, we, we maintained a rate of 60 miles per hour. So it's very important for us to recognize that not only conceptually are rates and measures different, but mathematically they can also be different. So now let's go back to that earlier slide where I said uh, these other sources said wavelength was in meters, which is how it is typically expressed, let's just quickly show mathematically if that's the case. So we know the frequency, the relationship between, or excuse me, we know the equation or the relationship between frequency, wavelength, and velocity. So let's look at this. Velocity for us is going to be some measure of distance over some measure of time. We're going to stick with meters for, for distance and seconds for time. So we can say velocity is given in, in meters per second. Frequency, while most people use the convenience of uh, Hertz, which is uh, given that name in honor of a man named Hertz, um, you really have to break it down to what it, what it really is, and that is cycles per second, which is also a rate just like velocity. Now, we can do math, we can do units, we can do a lot of things to conclude that wavelength is meters per cycle. It is a rate, not a measure.
So we have to be very, very careful because this can lead to some interesting mistakes. As we've pointed out, I think in episode 11, when we look at the Michelson-Morley experiment, um, we, we can take a beam of light and hold up a mirror 300, mile, 300 million meters away from that light source, and we can ask ourselves how many cycles are between that beam of light and that mirror. And of course, we know the answer to that, that we can call that F. Now, if that light is reflected back from the mirror, back to the light source, there is another F cycles. So if you count cycles, which is a measure, we would say that there are two F cycles, twice the amount. However, if we are looking at it as a rate, meaning what is the frequency, the frequency has not changed. The frequency is still F cycles per second. And we can do a similar thing by looking at wavelength. And we know that this is the case because there is a one-to-one -one relationship between frequency and wavelength. So the key thing to remember is that wavelength is a rate and should be expressed as meters per cycle. Now the next area that I'd like to bring to your attention that's very important is distinguishing between functions and equations. Now, for many people, you can use a function and treat it as an equation, and you might not have anything bad happen at all, but sometimes it can lead to problems. The key thing I want people to walk away with with respect to this table we have on the left-hand side is that equations have three main things that you do with them. You can define them, you can simplify them, and they deal with global variables. Functions you can define them, you can optimize them, and optimizing means you're simplifying prior to invoking it, so you have to think about different things in that case. You can invoke it, you can simplify it, which is simplification after invocation. It can deal with global variables, and it can deal with local variables. So you can see functions have a lot more things that you can deal with, but more, most importantly, functions require a definition and an invocation, and that's different than an equation. So now let's look at Einstein's work and what he did. In his paper, he gives us a function. In fact, he tells us it is a linear function. And I've denoted that with the circle number one, which is a red circle, and that's his time function. Now, if you look at this function, it's not clear that it's a function um, because there's no no argument list for tau. Instead, we know it's a function because he tells us it's a function, but also if you look at the green circle number two, we see three invocation of, of the function, and that tells us that the function takes four arguments. So the question becomes, what are the arguments? What are the local variables that are going to get replaced in the function? Well, just looking at this part of his paper, you're not able to answer that question. However, when we look at his other statements that follow, we are able to perform some reverse engineering and conclude that the function should be defined formally with x prime and t as local variables. Now, y and z are, are there for completeness. However, when you look at the function body, y and z don't appear, so those could be real, um, reasonably ignored. 
The key thing to look at here is when you look at the blue number one, which is the formal function definition, and the red number one, you can see A, you can define the local variables, and B, you're not going to mistreat it as an equation, which you might do with Einstein's original function. So it's very important to write it in its, to write functions in their formal notation to avoid confusion. Now, one thing that's very important is once you make a distinction between a function and an equation and you take into account local variables, we are now in a position to answer the question, what does this function do? And you will get a different answer if you mistreat the function as an equation when you try to get that answer. So let's take a look at something. Let's say that I'm on a train and you are standing on the ground and the train is moving away from you and I am blowing the horn on the train. You hear the horn, but because it is moving away from you, you will hear it in a lower pitch than when when we when it when the train was stationary so what that means is the wavelength is getting longer conversely if i'm moving the train towards you you will hear a higher pitch meaning the wavelength is getting shorter so when we look at that this is what i've called in past episodes the long line and the short line now if i was to ask you a question what's the average of both of those shifts that that you just heard, you would take the equation for the one direction, you would add it to the equation to, of the other direction, and then you would divide by two and come up with the average. What if I said, find another way? Well, there are two other ways. And what we do is we begin by subtracting we, we find the difference between the two what I call the two lines. So you take the short line, and subtract it from the long line and you get what's called the remainder in physics terminology it's called the displacement you take that value and you divide that displacement by two then what you do is you have a choice you can either remove the displacement from the long line or you can add it to the short line and that will give you the same answer as adding the two values together and dividing by two but more importantly it gives meaning to the to the clause vx prime over c squared minus v squared, which is used in Einstein's time function. So just an example, just to sum up what we found, we found that there are really three ways to find the average. The easy way is to add the short line and the long line and divide by two, but you could do what Einstein did, which is to subtract the half of the remainder from the long line and of course you could add half of the remainder to the short line and all this does is it answers the question if you have an approaching and a receding Doppler shift what's the average now we have to look at one more thing when we look at Einstein's time function and that is when if, if it is treated in an informal manner which is in the which is the case in Einstein's paper you will get you will have his three invocations which are done informally almost algebraically but when it comes time to produce his time transformation equation he mistreats the time function and just simplifies it now we have to remember a function must be invoked before it can be simplified so 
In Einstein's case, we come up with a time equation that only works in certain cases. And there is one specific case where it works in a general sense, it will produce incorrect answers. Now, when we look at the formal method, you can actually see that we've invoked the, t the time equation three different times, once for each axis. And what that does is it just tells us that we're trying to find the time that's associated with going halfway along each axis. That's it. So it's pretty straightforward once you look at it in this manner. Now, the important thing is, notationally, when you see it written as a function, you're not going to mistreat it as an equation, which means you can't simplify it prior to invocation. So, why is this important? Now, some of you who have seen the earlier episodes on Michelson, Morley, or Ive Stillwell, um, it's pretty important because we will get different answers. So, let's take a look at that. Again, revisiting Ive Stillwell, they did an experiment and they expected to find 30 kilometers per second around the sun. They actually found 8 kilometers per second. Now, many textbooks will, will discount that 8 and say it's 0 kilometers per second. Well, do we just discount it or do we have another tool that we can use to tell us how we account for experiment, experimental error? The tool we use is statistics. And in this case, we can put a normal curve around this and take into account standard deviations of their experimental data and conclude that with 99.9% .9 confidence, we can say that the Michelson-Morley experiment using their data and their algorithm reveals an Earth orbital velocity that we would believe is between 6 and 10 kilometers per second. Now, what's important about this is to realize that 30 is not a possible answer. In fact, we are less than 0.05% sure that 30 kilometers per second is the answer. But importantly, when you look at it this way, zero is not the answer either. And that's a requirement for anyone who wants to support special relativity. So again, we're more than 99.9% .9 sure, using statistics, that zero is not the answer. So what we've done today, though, we've talked about averages, and we've talked about um, how, how this might be used to change our algorithm is to take an average instead of just adding. And once we do that, we keep the Michelson-Morley data. That's very important. We're not changing their data. We're changing the algorithm to take into account that we're dealing with rates, not measures. And once we do that, we come up with 32 kilometers per second, which tells us that pretty much we, we have a good answer. Our answer of 32, the expected result of 30, they're pretty close. But the important thing is that Miller's repeat experiment, and he also has data in his paper, when we analyze his data in the same way, he sought out to have a more accurate experiment. He actually came up with 30 kilometers per second. So again, once we analyze these experiments using rates, meters per cycle, we actually end up with better results. Now let's look at something that will have more practical implications on us day by day. And that has to do with our timekeeping devices. So we look at the Ive Stowell atomic clock experiment. First, we look at the actual results and, and the Einstein-based equations. You can see the variance there, 0.02 on average to 0.03. We can say 
that these are really good results. And in fact, if Einstein's equations are the only equations that work on this, because we know that the Newtonian equations won't work on them, um, these are really good results. It's really hard to say that there's something um, wrong with these, with this um, algorithm. However, once we look at a revised algorithm that takes into account rates, we get moving systems equations that produce zero error to the degree, to the degree of accuracy of the experiment. Now, what this means for us, which is something I think is very exciting, is it leads to higher accuracy in many of the things we're doing around position-based uh, systems and navigation systems. So today, where the GPS in your automobile, for example, may be able to indicate when you're approaching a certain turn or a certain off-ramp, um, tomorrow you might have devices that can tell you exactly what storefront you happen to be standing in, in front of, which would make for some very interesting advertising and some very interesting privacy conversations. Um, but from an automotive standpoint, maybe it could also help direct you to specific parking spots. So there are a lot of practical implications with increased accuracy. So what does this mean? Well, obviously, as we just talked about, there might be improved navigation systems. We might have improved scientific instrumentations. Clearly, once we start talking about rates instead of measures and we make that distinction, we realize that an equation that talks about measures is different than an equation that talks about rates, and they're not replacements for one another. So that will lead us to new moving systems models and theories and ideally, all of this will combine for new ideas and products. And I think that this leads us to some pretty exciting times and some pretty exciting changes ahead. So a quick summary of what we talked about today. First off, why hasn't this mistake been detected sooner? Again, we make it all the time, everywhere, and for the most part, it hasn't caught us before. So if someone says, the, and they just do a basic wavelength calculation, and they say the answer is 3 meters versus the answer is 3 meters per cycle, for the most part, outside of the term, the answer is still 3, and you move forward. However, there are cases, as we talked about, especially when you start doing more complex math, where you have to take rates into account or you will end up using the wrong mathematical operations. The second thing is that for the most part, um, functions, the nuances of functions aren't explicitly talked about. They are very much so in the computer science discipline um, because you have to be very explicit in terms of how you work with computers. But for the most part, most people can mistreat a function as an equation, and it probably won't hurt them. So again, these both of these problems have existed for a long time. Everyone makes the mistakes, and for the most part, you don't get bit by it. But when you do, it can be a problem. So what does it change? It changes our understanding of, of um, special relativity, especially when you look at, at what Einstein wrote. When he talks about moving rods, for example, just think in terms of wavelength. And when he talks about static rods, think in terms of length. Now, this will have a significant implication on his concept of simultaneity, because simultaneity is a concept that would apply to a measure, but would not apply to a rate. 
So that will lead us to new theories. Um, the nice thing about what we've done today, we've given a little bit more explanation around what the tau function does and what it means. And again, in order to understand that function, you have to look at it from a function's perspective, which means you have to take into account local variables and you have to take into account uh, the invocations of the functions. And lastly, we do have equations that give us better results. So they live within the error of the existing models. The key thing that I'd like you to take away from today, if you remember nothing else except uh, one thing, it would be just making a distinction between averages versus adding, rates versus measures, and functions versus equations. So I want to thank you today for watching episode 20 of the RelativityChallenge.com podcast. As always, I look forward to hearing your feedback and any questions that you might have. And definitely feel free to pass on the links and the URLs to any of your friends and colleagues who you think might be interested. I look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, be well.